Kia ora, Koto. Welcome back. Welcome everybody back to This Is Our Story on what for me right now is a very lovely, sunny spring Sunday afternoon. Uh, welcome back to you again, Briar. Congratulations for making it. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everyone. Anything interesting to report on your side of the Tasman? No, nothing interesting going on here. Just crap, <laughs> spring weather. <laughs> uh, yes, I do not miss that crap spring weather at all. Uh, the one thing I love about Brisbane, for those of you who don't know Brisbane, is that it's very predictable. <laughs> it's super nice right now, although it's starting to get really hot. Uh, so it's going to be a roaster of a summer. But anyway, such boring, shallow weather talk. <laughs> Let's get straight into it. Uh, we are going straight into story time. And the topic of this week's story time, something a little bit sweet and cute, I guess. We want to talk about some of the animals in our life in our lives uh, from back in the time of growing up on the farm and animals have always been a big part of both of our lives and I think growing up we basically always had pets from some of our earliest memories always involved some kind of animal. Uh, so Briar, I don't know if you want to start off by saying talk about our first pets. Well obviously I've talked before about horses and they've always been my biggest uh love and passion but yeah we've had lots of animals ranging from like our our uncle used to bring us lambs that mothers had rejected and mm -hmm. we had lots and lots of lambs that we had to bottle feed over the years and um, we also we had, had, had access to a lot of farm animals which yeah was pretty felt very normal for us mm. right but so many people have not had anything close to that experience because, I don't know, you remember it like in Topor, right? You remember that that farmland or whatever it's called? Mm. You know, where people, not Topor, um, oh, anyway, there's a place where all the tourists go to see all the farm animals and they see the, the sheep getting shorn and, you know, they get to see all the little lammies running around and they love it. And it was, you know, taking all the photos and stuff. It was so um, normal for us. Like, <laughs> so yeah, normal. Yeah. <laughs> Ice in Rotorua next to the luge. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, whereas that every stuff we spring, saw all the every time. Every spring, yeah, we used to get all the lambs. And sometimes mm. we'd have a few at once. And we used to, obviously, they get bottle fed every couple of hours. I remember taking my lamb to school because it needed feeding every couple of hours. <laughs> and we'd just tie it up outside. And my friend had her lambs as well. Um, I mean, you know when people make jokes about New Zealand and our uh, our Attract what? Well, attra attra I was going to say attraction. Like <laughs> <laughs> attraction to sheep. Uh, take that back. Take that back. In a, a hole here. <laughs> uh, we have a lot of sheep. I will leave think, it at that. I think and I'm always well. defending. I'm always defending New Zealand and 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 our connection with sheep. But you know, then again, if you lived in the country, it'd be really unusual for to not have some sheep in your life at some <laughs> <laughs> some degree. Anyway, you had one particular lamb, I remember, that you used to take to shows. Mm. And what was his name again? Comet. Comet, that's right. And <laughs> what were the competitions that you entered him in? So I took him to the A&P show, and he was around for a long time because most of the lambs we had either died or, I don't know, they must have gone back to the farm with our uncle. Well, I all I can I can't say remember, is but, all of mine died, but, you know, sorry, finish um, your story We first. had – this one and no one of yours called Llama. He 
They oh, stuck yeah. around. There was three of them, and I can't remember the third one, but they stuck around for quite a long time to fully grown sheep. And um, <laughs> I used to take them to the A&P show, and I got a prize one year for best led best led lamb but when you look at the picture from it he definitely was not playing ball that day <laughs> i was yanking his lead around but i am um, because was i was pretty good he was a pretty horses. good looking lamb i mean he, he cool. would have made some pretty good chops he was cool <laughs> but hey <laughs> but the morning of the show i've actually i've got a picture of it somewhere maybe we'll share it to the the podcast instagram but I washed him and, and got the hairdryer out and was blowing and brushing his that. wool. <laughs> he loved mm-hmm. it being pampered. And, um, but I was obsessed with horses, right? So I even taught him to jump. So I set up these, <laughs> these jumps, poor blooming sheep. He had a, you know, full coat of wool on and it was the middle of summer and I'm teaching him to jump over these jumps. And he, I remember him panting like, <laughs> like he was obviously quite fat too. So he was, Unfit, fully mm-hmm. covered in wool, the poor thing. But, um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well, you had I mean, some. I had a few lambs, not the best luck. So I had my first one and I named him Buster for whatever reason I do not know. Sounded cute. But he was very sickly because uh, just to, like if you don't know anything about, about sheep or farm animals, you know, when a mother gives birth to it, generally they look after them for a little while straight out of the womb. But every now and then, a mother will reject one and I don't know, often, often those lambs would die just out in the field or whatever, but our uncle wanted to make sure they didn't die obviously. And what better way than just hang them off to the, off to the kids, Briar and I. <laughs> anyway, so I had Buster. He didn't last very long. I think maybe a couple of weeks if that uh, it was very sad. And then I got a second one, same season, I think actually. Yeah, it was. And named him Buster the second. And he also only survived about a couple of weeks. And uh, then I had a third one. Um, Guess what you called it? <laughs> Buster the Third. <laughs> the cursed names. And he also died. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, you know, it was very cute. Lambs are very cute. And I do miss that part of, of farm life, actually, being around the farm animals. But we, I we mean, also... like at home, we, we had chickens. Yes. Mum, like mum and dad just love chickens. <laughs> but even now they have chickens of their own. Uh, but yeah, we always had those around, and so fresh eggs, of course, it was really nice. And we also in the spring had um, this was you were <clears throat> you weren't as fussed as I was, but we had calves, mm. and it was our job. Like mum and dad bought them for us to raise, um, and this was our way of making pocket money. We had it was our responsibility to feed them, and they were in the pen, and we had to clean out the pen, muck it out, and when they were yearlings, we'd sell them and get the money back. Although and I do have a distinct memory that actually it was mostly Dad who was doing all of the work. No, I, I was feeding them, but they were assholes. When we put them out in the paddock, they would just run straight through the fencing, and it oh, would yeah. end up being me and Dad chasing them round, trying to get them back in the bloody other side of the tape but i think it just the electro fence wasn't um connected to the mains and it just wasn't very mm. strong so mm. i remember oh that my god I mean, they are stubborn they're real dickheads and i know <laughs> this after working on the dairy farm <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, and both dad and i would be running around like trying to tackle them as they run past and they'd just they're very go the other way yeah, very. <laughs> uh, um, i think we got about 700 dollars each 
Yeah, it was, yeah. And which is a lot of money now, let alone back then to yeah. young teenagers. But, yeah, the price per kilo was quite good. So, you know, we, we learned to, as most kids growing up on the farm, you don't become so attached that, you know, you know that that was going to be the end game. Mm. Sell them for meat. And, um, yeah, it was good pocket money. Mm. Yeah, I think, like, this is part of farm life that I guess – you know, I really appreciate it because it, it taught me a lot about just natural life cycles, you know. Uh, and responsibility. It was, yeah. But there's, I mean, there's obviously good ways to look after animals as well. And, and I do know the difference between being a responsible farm animal owner to the ones who mistreat. So we learned those lessons too. But yeah, the other one, we mostly just had cats as well. So we always had cats around, uh, mostly because mum doesn't like dogs. <laughs> She's one of the very few people I know in this planet who doesn't like dogs. <laughs> uh, but my first, I had my first cat, uh, Will Scarlet, who I've mentioned before. Uh, but then I, I had a, that's right. So my second cat, we called him Obed. But he was, a, in all sense of the word, a farm cat because he had been abandoned on my uncle's sheep farm. And he just made a home for himself in the uh, sharing shed. And so we went up to, so my uncle was like, oh, he had told us about it and we, he thought we, we might like to rescue him. So I don't know if you remember this, Briar, but we drove up to the sharing shed and then they're just big, he's quite a big cat, a big orange, yeah. long haired, beautiful cat, Very just lovely. bounded out <laughs> of the sharing shed and just jumped straight in the car. We didn't even have to call him. He just came out and jumped in the car and we just took him home and then he just became a <laughs> oh, part of the furniture. Oh, he was such a lovely cat too. Yeah. So sweet. Yeah, so I called him Obed, which is a very kind it's of... It's a biblical name, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I recall you um, choosing a biblical name. <laughs> yes, I did like the old niche names. Uh, and we had like a couple of other cats along the way as well. And So yeah, animals have always been a very big part of our lives. And I think both of us are still very connected with, with animals. Mm. Uh, anyway, oh, sorry, you didn't have anything else to add, Brian, on the animal <laughs> front? No, no. <laughs> Could be we get in trouble day. for talking over you again. <laughs> I've had many horses since then as well. So, but well, because often you were already. borrowing horses, right? I remember. Yeah. Actually, before we move on, I remember the very memorable story of the horse that escaped. Well, <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a very nice story. I had two that escaped, actually, but not a very nice story. I had um, my uncle and auntie had a, a little pony that they gave me. And I think I only had it for about three days and it was so anxious and somehow it managed to get out of the paddock and we used to live on one of the main state highways, state highway 10, and it um, got out onto the road in the middle of the night and somebody hit it in a car and obviously it died, it bled, bled to death yeah. in, the, um, in the ditch and my uncle. It was quite for long because it wasn't it wasn't that late at night because I remember I remember this very clearly because I was we had a bunch of people at over at the house and we were all playing a game of risk together and we saw all these flashing lights outside See, and we're like, oh what's going on what's you going must on? have been up late because I my memory of it was uh, I was in bed already oh you were you were definitely asleep and yeah. you only found about it out about it the, the next morning. day mm. but uh, I mean. It was a game of risk, so of course it was a late night. <laughs> but we all went out to investigate, thinking it was just an accident. And then, yeah, we walked down there and we found, um, yeah, the horse. It was quite a miraculous story in a way because 
you know, if a horse hits a car, like generally mm. the person's a goner because there's mm. such a big object to get hit, you know, mm. it's pretty horrible. But the horse had hit the car and then run back up and then just fallen on off the road. So could have mm. been a lot worse. But it was very, um, very intense Briar, for you, I remember the next it day. It was when... so traumatic. I, I remember because we had a t- the two-story house and I remember looking out my bedroom window and I wasn't allowed out because so my uncle came with his like pickup you pickup truck whatever you mm. want to call it and had to this is awful <laughs> we may have to put a trigger warning but he he what I remember is that he had he was walking down the drive with a bloody axe yeah. and blood all over it and he basically had to chop up my horse to put it on the to be able to lift it and put it on the on the back of the truck to take it home for dog meat. Like, yeah, it, it's, it was on. so traumatic. I, I will never, ever forget that day. Awful, mm. awful. Um, mm. Yeah. So, yeah, not, that wasn't very nice at all. No. Where, where do we go from there? <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll just put it in tumbleweeds. <laughs> we might as well just jump straight into our, yeah. <laughs> what we're actually here for. Uh. Yeah, and only happy stories to come. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, so let's jump straight into the episode proper. So just a very quick recap. Over the last two episodes, I guess mostly focusing on my story, we've talked about how my the beginning stages of my relationship with uh, my first partner, who I then went on to get married to, and I shared about some of the beginning stages of that traumatic journey and some of the very kind of intense feelings that I had at that time and we kind of segued a little bit into talking about the beginning stages of Briar's married life journey as well so I guess we probably covered maybe the first year or first two years of of uh, both of us being in, involved in married life I will be honest, it's been, it was quite intense for me. <laughs> You'll probably hear that in the recording. It was a little bit hard for me to talk about, and I suspect that will continue. It's it's funny, just as, a, as an aside, like when you talk about these things that have been quote-unquote buried for years, uh, and you think that they have kind of gone away, even though your brain tells you that they haven't, they still just exist there, just a little bit below the surface and you know you ne- we all know that all of us are broken right it's just a natural part of life we've all been through a lot of shit and that becomes a part of who we are and it, you know we recraft ourselves based on our experiences in the past and i and i have done that and most of that has been a positive recrafting but those broken parts still exist and you can't ever completely heal those things because they are just who I am uh, so yeah it's been a it's been an interesting couple of weeks as I've been processing bringing up that stuff again because what I talked about in the episodes itself that wasn't so traumatic but it was the connection with the future chapters of my life that that are much more fresh that it's just kind of been bringing that up again <laughs> anyway anyway just a, a long intro to kind of get back into the stuff. I guess we we're just going to pick up the story from where we left off. So I guess after, so that first year after I got married, I was still, so I, 
I remember I talked about working at Countdown at the supermarket. And then after six months of working, I went back to uni to finish off. And what should have been six months actually ended up being an extra year to finish off my uni. Just unfortunately how it worked out with papers and stuff. But I even now looking back, I'm quite proud of the fact that I went back to finish. Uh, you know, I could have walked away and just carried on with my life. But I mean, I guess anybody who knows me well knows that I hate quitting. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't think I, the perfectionist side of me could ever have not gone back and finished my degree. But I went back, finished my teaching degree and got to the end and just really super, super lost. Like I came out of out of university with a whole lot of debt. <laughs> a whole lot of oh God. <laughs> whole lot of debt because I can't remember if I've mentioned this before but so I I wasn't financially supported by mum and dad I don't really resent them for that I don't really know what their money situation was we didn't really talk about money much um, with mum and dad but I didn't really know how to manage finances so that meant that I was getting a weekly allowance from the government an allowance being part of a student loan I was getting course-related costs of $1,000 per semester and also on top of that, of course, paying for all my tuition. And so it just at winter, by the time I left uni, I was probably about four, 30 to 40 grand in debt. And that was so that was over like three and a half to four years of study. That didn't really feature on my radar because when you're first out of uni, you don't want to think about it. You pretend it doesn't exist. Mm. But came out was like shit I am not ready to be a teacher I don't know what it was but I was just scared of being an adult I think mm. <laughs> of being that responsible one of being in this really kind of predictable uh, still kind of a kid yourself to then having to be teaching yeah others. <laughs> and I just felt it and I think this is this is definitely a part of me of who I am not so much now I feel a lot more settled in myself but that that fear of feeling like I would be stuck in one place doing one thing potentially for the rest of my life. That fear of settling. In fact, even now I use the word settle and it's like <laughs> cringe a little bit. And so when I came out of uni, I just didn't, I just super, super lost. And I went straight into uh, like a really random job, like delivering for Noel Leeming, which is kind of like Harvey Norman, or I can't really think of another example, but going, setting, delivering TVs and fridges and such and setting them up. So as an academic person, kind of really, quote unquote, ready for big things and then just settling for some random kill time job. I think that was a real adjustment for me. Um, and so that I kind of was just going, I was just floating. I was just killing time at that stage. So I graduated 2006. I must have been around about 23, 24, something around that around that time uh and i worked there for a year two years and i think that that whole time i was just desperate to to see the world and, and as i've mentioned before met a number of times obsessed with adventure right and nothing about my life in total at the time that predictable i say predictable but my married life is anything but predictable but <laughs> <laughs> uh the idea of just being in that one place doing a boring job, you know, just going through the motions, 
that that was like a nightmare. That was a nightmare for me. And I just really, really wanted to to get out. And it was about this time that I started lobbying my partner to let her, uh, sorry, let us move or leave New Zealand or, you know, consider options about going to other countries. And like, I think I probably had lots of ideas about places that I wanted to go or wanted to live. But I think it seemed to me that Australia was just the easiest option because knowing what my partner was like in terms of something safe and stable, Australia was going to be the easiest option for her. And I think that was I think that was the only thing she was actually willing to uh, compromise on was going to Australia because it wasn't too far away. Mm. And I think at this time you had by the time we came to making this decision to leave, you were um, you had just left. And so that was probably something that was definitely in the mix. The fact that you had got to leave New Zealand and I didn't Mm. (laughs) definitely bothered me at the time. But I mean, alongside all of this, you know, I was really invested in church life as well. I just remembered, actually. I tried to leave Tauranga in those first couple of years after uni. I I was actually, I can't believe I forgot this. I was going to go to police college. That's right. I was like, shit, I I really want to do something that has a bigger purpose to it. And I was all set on going to police college in, in, in Wellington. We even... At our church at the time, we told everybody we were leaving and uh, we were all set basically to kind of pack up and go. We hadn't actually done the packing yet, but we had a goodbye party. And Did you? Yeah. Yeah. I don't even so remember what, what year this was. This must have been 2007, maybe 2008. I, d- I just remember having a conversation with my partner and I don't know what it was. She wasn't that comfortable with the idea of going or maybe it was a mutual decision. Well, at least it felt like a mutual decision. And it just, I don't know, we just died and we had to come back and then tell everybody who had decided to stay. (laughs) (laughs) And it was, it was actually awkward. Like People were like, oh, so you're not going then? (laughs) (laughs) We just had to continue like doing life and in Tauranga with the same church people and everything and just pretend that we never said we're about to leave. <laughs> so weird. Uh, uh, but yeah, I was very involved in church at this time. So I was in youth ministry. So part of an intermediate outreach group, intermediate youth one working with vulnerable youth. And I was really passionate about that and, Really, like it was just a lot of fun, but also gave me an opportunity to do something that made me feel like I was giving back to the world. But at the same time, it was a, I think, a distraction from stuff at home because it gave me another night to get out of home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got to go out every Friday and it was tiring. I was definitely tired back then because, you know, working and serving, as we call it in church life, uh, it's it's hard. It's, I don't know, there's a lot to unpack there. I don't, I don't, not really the appropriate time, I think, in, in talking about this to, to unpack. Well, also constantly managing things at home too. Yeah. The predictability of it. That's exhausting in itself. Mm, yeah. And I don't, in terms of the early marriage years, I can't say I really remember a lot of it, that part. I do, one other thing, feature of those first couple of years was that we moved around about three or four times. I think 
from 2005 to 2009. I think we probably moved five times. Uh, just there was always some kind of re- – and I think it wasn't necessarily I, me that was making those decisions. No surprise there, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it was always, oh, we're too far away from town or, oh, this place – just doesn't feel comfortable enough or you know i just want an extra bedroom or this is not nice enough there was always an excuse for moving to another house and that was quite stressful <laughs> to say mm. the least because there was never a chance for us to just breathe and just get used to life together maybe that uh, was a reflection on you know like, like how things are going never feeling settled or you know trying to figure out the missing piece in the puzzle and maybe mm. it was like oh it's the house it's the place we're at we just don't feel at home here but yeah. maybe that's yeah. not what it was well I mean I suppose in hindsight that's probably what it was for me but for me it was got to get out of the country but for her it was got to be in a new we just need the comfortable space there's got to be a perfect house out there for us a place where we can feel truly at home uh, and as I've shared in, in the last episode, I talked about the fact that she needed stability and predictability, and I think that's definitely a part of it, having an environment that was just a bit easier to control, a bit more comfortable, you know. And when you're that when you're that way inclined, unless you deal with those issues, you're always constantly going to be trying to fix them in some way, right? You never, you never run away from your problems. <laughs> As I found out when I ran away to Australia, <laughs> the problem actually came with me. <laughs> uh, so I guess for me, I, we, I don't know, I convinced her that, okay, maybe let's go to, let's go to Australia. Let's go to Sydney. And I think probably a part of that decision was church related. We had a couple of friends in Sydney or my, my best man live there so that would have been part of it but also the opportunity to go to Hillsong as well Hillsong Church which many people will know of which our our church was kind of became a, a copycat of Hillsong and a lot of other churches in New Zealand were the same at that stage Hillsong was booming and it was before they went global but they were still very influential in in the church world uh, the Pentecostal church world and why wouldn't I want to go to a place that where I actually got to go and experience Hillsong for real, you know, <laughs> on, in, on my own terms rather than just the copycat version? It was very exciting, actually, the thought of going to this mega church and seeing the, the and hearing the best music. And, yeah, that was pretty cool. So but did I mean, you a bit before it, go? Yeah, yeah. yeah so we, we did attend. So, we, I mean, skipping ahead a little bit. We, we lived in Sydney for a year. And uh, we attended Hillsong for that whole year, actually. There, yeah, there's more stuff to talk about that, but I just don't want to dominate too much. <laughs> so I'm just going to flick the mic back over to you, Briar. So what what was going on for you in those first few years after you got married? Pretty um, non-eventful, to be honest. I was working, doing casual jobs, and then I got a full-time job at a daycare in in Bethlehem, and uh, I was there up until um, yeah, until we decided to leave. And I can't remember the decision process behind it. Probably pretty similar. I just really wanted to to travel, and we decided that Perth was a good place to go. 
we had uh, I had family there um, that could sort of help set us up and it, and was at that, that an attraction time, though? Because um, you, did you had it, you stayed in contact with Auntie? Loosely, but it was probably more that you know the idea of having support while we get us got ourselves set up was appealing, mm. but probably the main appeal was. So when we left, it was middle of 2008 and it was right when the recession hit New Zealand mm. and, and Tauranga was known as $10 Tauranga. Like there was no money to be made. Mm. But at the same time in Perth, the mining industry, it was just absolutely booming and there was a lot of money in Perth. Yeah, I remember that. And they were trying to draw people in to the city because actually the city was underpopulated at the time because everyone would go to the mines, which was out of Perth. So we were like, let's do it. Let's go make some money. And, yeah, that, that was July 2008. And we didn't really have anything in New Zealand stopping us, really. Like my partner, his family was here and he was close with them, but they were like, you know, go for it. And so we ended up spending six months there. How, how was, did you feel about, like, what, what were your feelings? I don't know if you remember this, but before heading off into the big wide world? Well, just before we left was when um, we'd been sort of, we'd started stop going to church. Like we'd been kicked out of that um, cell group. So we were kind of disconnecting ourselves from the people we knew. And so we were just ready to go. We were like, whatever. There was no, I don't remember having a feeling of, emotional attachment to Tauranga or to people there. We did have a farewell dinner and, and some of my old friends from school came down and that did was I, probably... Did I go to that? I don't remember. Um, it was very low-key, probably. It was very low-key. We literally just had dinner at a restaurant with some people. And then when we left, it was quite weird because for the first time ever, we didn't feel like we had eyes on us. Uh, you know, from our parents, um, from the church people. There was no – like, it was starting completely afresh and exploring something very freeing about that, right? Oh, totally. Because, it was, I mean, when, when you first left home, well, you know, when we first, first left home, there was a, a sense of freedom, but at the same time it mm, came with – Not fully. Yeah, it came with some attachment to mm. something, Uh with still some rules attached, right, or and, expectations. And our, yeah, and our parents had set us up with families and other people to keep an eye on us, right, whereas mm. this was like, uh, you know, fully adulting <laughs> and going mm. out into the big wide world. And I'd been once before to Perth when I was 15, but this was such a big deal. And we stayed with – we were living with uh, our auntie, mum's sister, who – well, we won't go into it, but their relationship's a little bit weird. But <laughs> um, <laughs> Understatement. <laughs> yeah. So we were staying with them, and oh, there was definitely some awkward moments there. But we used to go leave the house and go exploring. And, um, oh, it was a great six months, but we kind of also went off the rails a little bit. You know, it was our first time sort of we experienced – you know, going out and getting drunk and getting in with crowds of people that we definitely would not have associated mm -hmm. with in a, in a past life. 
in New but Zealand. I mean, how, how did you meet them? Um, mostly through work. Um, so, like, what was your your work situation? So, I, I, so in New Zealand, when I trained, I became a qualified nanny. But in Australia, my qualification meant that I was a qualified teacher, which meant mm. I was getting huge amounts of money for <laughs> a qualification that I really, I, I don't know how that worked, but I think I was getting something like fifteen dollars more an hour than I was mm. in New Zealand, like. We were like, holy moly. And then my partner, who was a cabinet maker, got a good job. I can't remember how much more he was earning, but I, I remember when he went for the interview and they said, oh, you'll be starting on this. Hopefully that's okay. He had to sort of act as if that was like, <laughs> he was totally blown out yeah. of his mind how much they were offering compared to what he was getting in New Zealand because it was yeah. just huge. I mean, it's, no, it's no surprise that so many Kiwis leave New oh, Zealand, yeah. right? Totally. Yeah. And um, so that was just like, wow, we like this is, you know, it was so exciting. We were earning big bucks and um, like Perth isn't a cheap place to live, but the money makes, you know, makes it mm. totally doable. I mean, there's like, all these like bars and things there as well, right? Restaurants. and Yeah. I've never I've never been to Perth, but that's what I've been told. Yeah. So we lived out of the city in a place called Frio or Fremantle. So we had to catch a train to go into the city, but. Um, it's weird because back then, Perth, it was so empty. Like, there seemed hardly any people in the city. Beautiful city, so clean, and, you know, it's got the river running through it. So if you haven't been before, it's definitely a place I'd recommend going. And, yeah, it was – we arrived in winter, but it was still, like, 25 degrees. It was just mm. like – oh, the whole time we were there, it was just like, oh, this is so cool. Like, <laughs> mm. so we were going to, like, parties every week. And, and getting like messed up <laughs> and I think it was just because like we it's had like a, when I you think, first it's like when you first leave home <laughs> yeah but like <clears throat> so the first drink I had I, I did have a drink in New Zealand and I was 21 when it was my first drink but um this was just like next level and <laughs> it was just like well we <laughs> <laughs> like a an, an second coming of age I still have a memory right of it was the what do you call it the grand national final the uh, AFL, AFL yeah final, AFL yeah. final which is a big deal in Australia mm-hmm. and these people that we knew mostly through my partner's work they'd arranged to do like a, a champagne breakfast and um, we went round and there was no breakfast. No one had brought any any breakfast or That's ordered not, any food. It's <laughs> a champagne breakfast. <laughs> yeah. So literally, <laughs> people had already started drinking. I think we met up with them at like 9 a.m. And we were drinking from 9 a.m. till 3 a.m. the next day. Jesus. <laughs> and I had, I had bought a, a one-liter bottle of vodka, and I was supposed to be sharing it with someone else. I didn't share it. I had the whole <laughs> thing, and I ended up blacking out. And vomiting all over our friend's white <laughs> sofa, and um, <laughs> uh, and yeah, having to be looked at. That hangover lasted three days. No word of a lie. <laughs> three days. It was awful. And but I, I mean, still- like, so how did you reconcile? Like, you must have had some sense of how different this life was. Uh, did you like? How did you reconcile those two different sides of you? Or, like, was this this new version of you, was that you? 
I think um, I didn't sort of have a conscience about it. I literally was just too wrapped up in this feeling of freedom and nobody had to know, you know, like our mm. parents didn't know that I was getting wasted every weekend or, um, you know, that we weren't going to church. And it was just like, quietly, I'm fucking loving this new life and this new me. And it was just, you know, like most most normal teenagers would do that when they leave home, right? They sort of mm. go out and experience the world in that sense. And I hadn't done that before. So this was just like a, a yeah, a totally different version of myself. And I was like, this is so much fun. Mm. I mean, the hangovers weren't fun. But, <laughs> um, but it was just something I had to do I just had yeah. to sort of get that out of my system but I mean just as if I could switch back very quickly to to my side that I never experienced that so and to be honest I had no idea you were going through this as well I mean mm. obviously I knew later on but uh I didn't go through this kind of new coming of age because I was having a completely different life mm. quote-unquote maturing in the faith mm. <laughs> in in church life where I was in a church that had just started I remember actually they had a meeting about the church's position on drinking and all of a sudden it was a you know the decision that they'd reached was that it was okay for leaders to drink uh, but obviously within moderation <laughs> uh, I so that I didn't realize that yeah I mean it was uh, obviously be setting a good role model was very important but we weren't against the idea of drinking itself and so people started drinking, but I still felt like boundaries. it wasn't, <laughs> I didn't feel it was right for me because I think I, we've talked about how I had this very strong moral code, which I was unable to to break, but that was but never also, a negative thing for me. our parents never, ever yeah. drank. Like, you know, yeah. there, was there was no, no like, alcohol the in our beer, house. Zero, like nothing. We never and saw that. And we, we grew up with a very negative perception of alcohol. Mum mm. and dad openly would say negative things about people who are drunk or, you know, mm. even with just seeing someone drunk on the street, it's like mm. something that was actually unsafe. And mm. so I was always afraid of not, uh, I didn't want to do that myself, but then I also didn't want to really associate with people who would get drunk. And even though I would never say it, I did definitely judge people who did go out and drink. And I mm. think probably if I had known about your lifestyle, I definitely would have, felt the same way towards you as well from that at that time but that's what was so good about being there was there was no judgmental eyes on us we could literally yeah. just do what we wanted <laughs> yeah I mean and, and I can't really say that I missed out on that because I didn't know what I was missing but mm. I do remember very clearly there was a sermon that I heard at that church where one of the speakers that the title of the sermon was the microphone is always on and this stayed with me basically forever, even now. Mm. The fact that I still remember it is crazy. Yeah. But it just typifies uh, this certain brand of Christianity that God is always watching or people are always watching. Mm. You can interpret it however your brain tells you to interpret it. And so basically I, I was always going around feeling like somebody was watching and I had to be extra, extra careful with the way I conducted myself. And so therefore I was never going to get myself in a compromising and I, position. I guess because you were also one of the leaders with the youth, you are very aware of that too, mm, mm. being setting so, an example. And yeah, so I, to be honest, I have no idea when I had my first drink. Uh, which obviously, wasn't a big deal. <laughs> I, I know I, I 
like I drank wine every now and then, but oh, very little. I wasn't enamored with it. I didn't feel like I needed it. And I think I was quite proud of that too. And I, I do remember being someone who would tell other people that I didn't need alcohol. I didn't need to drink to get drunk. And I was a bit high and mighty about it, seeing myself as better than those who did. Well, yeah. Anyway, uh, so, I mean, obviously, six months, what happened there? Because I'm not fully across the details of what happened with that. Was it more to do with the family dynamic stuff? or? So we were there, yeah, for six months. I think we had planned on staying longer to to earn money, but I mean, six months was pretty short. It must have yeah. gone really quickly. Yeah, and we did. And um, while we were there, we sort of explored around Perth. We went to Rottnest Island and had a good time. And then I kind of decided I wanted to be in the UK for Christmas. And um, even though we had been earning good money we still had no money I guess because the more you earn the more you spend Mm. so we actually ended up actually it was quite a stressful time we had a a falling out with my auntie who we were living with and I don't know what was going on at the time maybe she was going through menopause or something but she just turned horrible (laughs) Um, we won't delve into that but so we wanted to get out of there and we couldn't find a rental for whatever reason and um so we decided we'd just go to the UK, which was always our long-term plan because my partner's sister lived there, but it, it, we weren't planning on doing it so soon. So we had to go through the visa process, and that if you've done that before, it's incredibly stressful. And we'd booked our flights, but our visas hadn't come through. And if I remember, who, who, how were you getting your? So you did the. Um, yeah, so ancestry visa. Yeah, so the visa I went for was the ancestry visa because our grandfather, dad's dad, was Scottish, so um, it meant that I could go for ancestry visa, which was a five-year-long visa. And I feel like I may have, we may have missed, um, like we hadn't got our passports back or something in time, so we had to change our flights or something. Oh man, it was stressful. And we were staying at, we'd moved out of my auntie's place to a colleague who I worked with just because it was temporary. She was like, don't worry, I'll help you out. And so we were there for a while. So we were very aware that we were, we didn't want to outstay our welcome. And I think our visas came through like, I don't know, like the day before our flight or something. Far out, it was stressful. Mm. Um, And we the day we left Perth, it was 40 degrees Celsius, and we went, <laughs> flew to the UK and landed in London where it was zero degrees, like <laughs> the week before Christmas. And yeah, that was the start of a whole other time of my life. Um, yeah. Yeah. What, so um, so what, what year was that that you arrived? So that was the end of 2008 that we arrived in London. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. But we just like switch back. I'm just what I'm very aware of the, how long I've been talking already. Just to kind of switch back to my side. So it, that was the end of 2008. So I hadn't even left yet. And so I think the uh, hearing like the adventures that you'd had, even though we weren't really talking all that much, mm. I was obviously aware of where you were. And then the fact that you ended up in the UK, I literally, I think all my whole life had always wanted to live in the UK, just mm. based on all the books I'd read. It was just felt like the center of the world. It was, yeah. And the fact I was obsessed and probably with the history. history. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, I'd always wanted to be in the center of that. And I think I probably, well, I definitely did want to move there, 
that we ended up in Sydney <laughs> based on the fact that my partner didn't want to go so far, but it was better than nothing. Right. So we ended up in Sydney. I kind of similar to you, but a different way. It felt very, very freeing to be away from New Zealand. And I remember that, that thrill of being mm. somewhere new and, you know, I've already mentioned how often I've moved and I think every time I get that same thrill and it's actually, it, I've had to, kind of teach myself that actually you can get addicted to that thrill absolutely and it's although it's cool to experience it's not necessarily healthy (laughs) uh anyway it was the first time I felt it and it felt amazing and basically when I left I was like I'm never going back New Zealand represented quiet life predictable quote-unquote boring and I was like I'm done like I'll go back and visit maybe every now and then but I'm I'm out (laughs) Uh, it, you know, it just represented rules and restrictions, I guess. But at the same time, as you know, it would have been obvious from what we've talked about already, my home life was like, I took that with me. I couldn't escape that. And so I was never fully comfortable in myself in this new environment. I wanted to set myself free a little bit and experience it in the way that I wanted to but uh, couldn't. <laughs> uh, that first year, anyway, we arrived in Sydney. Money disappeared really quickly. That's what I found out. One of the first lessons was doesn't matter how much money you've got when you move, it disappears really quickly after, you know, trying to find a house and then trying to get it. You had to buy a car and cars are expensive and and it took me quite a while to get a, get a job. I still didn't want to be a teacher. I was a bit too intimidated with the idea of, getting into teaching again. Eventually I ended up in a warehouse again, uh, working as a, as a laborer in a warehouse for baby kingdom. I don't know if you remember that. (laughs) It was a place called baby kingdom. So like, actually I I know stuff about babies, toys and furniture and things, (laughs) which is just one of the really many random, um, skill sets I picked up along the way. Uh, but at this time we, we joined Hillsong church and it was really exciting uh, to be involved in and Hillsong, if you're not aware, it's even back then before it went global, it was huge. And, you know, they'd have multiple services on a Sunday, thousands of people attending. The music is amazing. And I'd, I guess, I can't, I can't really think of a parallel, but no, there isn't the really idea anything. of, no, obviously I was in music already doing a lot of music back in my home church. Uh, but now I, I was in the place where all this music was created that I kind of idealized. We'd never say that in church circles, of course. <laughs> you would say, oh, these guys are so anointed and uh, it's such a good and amazing opportunity <laughs> to be in a place. Of, word, yeah. anointed. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that word. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I do. I did actually go for an audition to play in the Hillsong Band. And I don't, I don't really remember what happened there, but I don't know. I just didn't pursue it. I can't really remember why. But anyway, I don't want to spend too much time on that. But we found Hillsong, my partner and I found it quite hard because it was so large. Is it cool to be a part of it? But it was really hard to make friends. It was just too many people. It was just huge. Like, How do you make a small community of friends in a place as thousands of people are attending? Where nobody even notices a new person arriving. Yeah, yeah. And we uh, we did make some friends eventually. 
some Norwegian friends and they were great. And we, that was through a small group type um, scenario. And it was cool to like meet people from different cultures and backgrounds because Hillsong attracts people from all over the world. They come there to study. And, and I actually attended a few theology classes there just for fun. Um, that's the kind of person I was because I was an academic, right? I wasn't getting any kind of brain exercise working in a warehouse. And I just kind of really wanted to keep learning and stuff. And I think this is actually when I started being exposed to different theology and, and things. That, there was one particular professor who did come up. He had some really alternative ideas, theological ideas, which really opened up my eyes to. And I really started questioning some of the stuff that I'd been taught from my conservative background where you know things like i remember in the old days of original church preachers saying you know if the bible says it i believe it and there was no so this was through church the the yeah so that the 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 school of theology i can't remember what they call it hillsong college is what's what it's called and i just went along because i had friends who were attending who were part of that and just as as a guest people thought that was wild that i would just go to a lecture for fun but you know, here I was here. I was hearing questions about people who were saying that perhaps, you know, literal creation stories weren't accurate. And, you know, maybe there was other ways of explaining where we came from. And that was a I'd always been questioning stuff, but very privately and very low key. So now all of a sudden I was being exposed to different ideas, different ways of viewing God and different ways of viewing people and the relationship between people and God. So it was a really key time in my life from that aspect. Being in Sydney, didn't really enjoy Sydney, to be honest. Uh, we were there for a full year, never felt like we could completely settle in. Everyone just felt so busy all the time, and it's very money-focused or work-focused. Everyone just seems to be slogging away in the ant race. Uh, rat race, I should say. What did I say? Ant race. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ants are very busy, but <laughs> you can edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so just to kind of speed up a little bit, I'm just very aware of our, how long we've been talking, but it was a really interesting experience that I had in terms of relationship between these new friends and between my partner and I, that in hindsight, now I realize that they had become aware of the very kind of intense dynamics between my partner and I and there was an, a, a time where we we my partner and I we went back to New Zealand for a visit and we we took these guys with us to show them around and there was just a couple of moments on that trip where they looked extremely uncomfortable because as per usual our disagreements had become very public or when I say disagreements I mean my partner's expectations <laughs> and outbursts had, were quite uncomfortable and, and public. And there was a time where she really wanted to show these people our home church for some reason around Tauranga. And they weren't all that keen. And she was pressuring me to get them to leave and come to see the, so we could show them around our church. And it was really uncomfortable. I could see they didn't want to go, and so I didn't want to talk to them. But my partner was saying, oh, go and talk to them, go and talk to them. And then she got really mad and, and like, pulled my hair. And uh, it was, firstly, really, really embarrassing. I do remember that very clearly, the embarrassment. But then also, like, really fucking intense. <laughs> um, yeah. They were obviously really awkward. They never talked about it, but I could see the discomfort 
in the way that they reacted toward, towards us. In a way, fast forward, after being in Sydney almost a year, we decided to move down to Melbourne. And I can't really remember the reason why, but I suppose it was kind of obvious. It just, Sydney wasn't really for us. We went and visited Melbourne and really liked it. We just really liked the vibe there. And my partner, had done, she went for an interview for a, a school a teaching job there and it went really well and it just felt like it was time for us to move on but then I just remember telling our friends that we were leaving Sydney and they my partner had walked away they you know quietly said to me uh are you sure you want to go just want to just want to check because you know you don't have to go if you don't want to right and at the time I was like oh no it's fine and I'm like I'm oh, good I want to go but now looking back that was the first, I kid you not, the first time someone had ever suggested that things might not be okay between my partner and I. Mm. And I think the only time, if I just skip forward a little bit, <laughs> I think it's the only time that I think someone has ever, ever overtly said something that suggested that things might not be okay with our relationship. Uh, so that's brave of them to approach very, you. Yeah. Considering you'd only known them a year yep. or less, you know, to approach you and, and ask you, are you okay, basically? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I respect them for that, but also, like, really sad that no one else, like, mm. there was no follow-up. I don't I don't feel any bitterness towards them, but we just carried on with our lives. And to be honest, things got tougher from this point on. Uh, I guess, you know, we've almost been talking for an hour now, so I'm I, Probably we'll pause it now and we'll carry this story on uh, in our next episode where we talk about, well, I'll be talking about moving to Melbourne and Brian will talk more about your journey in London where things got a little bit messy for you as well. And this is where things, you know, we're still in our mid-20s here, but this is where things kind of heated up a little bit in terms of our personal lives. And we didn't have much to do with each other at this time, but, you know, soon after this, we kind of came together again and. Um, it was quite a pivotal moment for both of us. So we'll we'll cover that uh, in our next episode. But yeah, thanks for um, following our story, and we hope that yeah, it it is getting a little bit heavy. But this is it's good for us, for Briar and I, to help process together. But I'm hoping that it's helping anybody out there who's been through similar trauma. To I hope it's not being too triggering basically is what I'm trying to say, but I'm hoping, I hope it's being healthy. I don't know if you have anything you want to say to sign off, Brian. Yeah. You, I mean, if you are going through it, you're, you're not alone and, yeah. you know, reach out to people, mm. if you know, the village around you, you know. Mm. Yeah. And if you see this, <laughs> yeah. And I think if you are the person that notices, if you are in a position to say something, please, for the love of God, and for the love of that person, if you really do cherish that person, just say something. You know, we have a big Are You OK campaign here in Australia. And uh, sometimes that's all it is, that simple question. And I, yeah, I just, I, that's how I, I guess that's how I leave this episode. But yeah. Yeah. Anyway, tune in next time where we get even deeper. <laughs> Woohoo. <laughs> all right. Thanks for thanks for tuning in. We'll see you again soon. Bye.